Hello, hello, hello. Happy Wednesday, everyone. My name is Emily Lamb, and this is Sheep Thrills. Uh, thank you all for tuning in on this lovely, beautiful fall morning um, here in Washington, D.C. It's like a crisp 60 degrees. It's Apple Day on campus. It's all just coming together. Um, I love fall. Um, I'm just so, so thrilled with this weather. That's not at all what we're talking about today, but I still think that it's fun to discuss because... What what better what better way to start a broadcast than talking about the literal weather? Um, but anyway, getting into what we are doing today. Um, so last week I got through a pretty surprising, uh, good chunk of everything that happened over the summer, over the past kind of four months. Um, but as I was reflecting kind of back on again the past several months, I realized that I did miss a couple. One very big important thing. Um, so that's where we're going to start today. We're going to spend a pretty good chunk of this episode talking about January 6th and all of the hearings that happened over the summer. Um, I just, I like forgot about it altogether because the last hearing was like in the beginning of August. So it's kind of a little bit out of sight, out of mind. However, it happened. It was very important. There was a lot that happened there. Um, so we're going to spend a pretty good chunk of time talking about everything that went on then. Um, And then we're going to talk about um, some immigration current events that have happened over the summer uh, and happened just in the past couple of weeks. Um, So we're going to get into that. And then finally, we're going to do a little bit more of an in-depth update into the federal budget process. Um, Some pretty big updates just happened yesterday. So we're going to kind of get into where exactly the federal budget process is and where it's going over the next couple of months. I know I touched on it last week, but I wanted to spend a little bit longer kind of digging into the nitty gritty there, um, just because it is something that is going to be occupying our attention for the next couple of months. Um, So all that being said, we're going to jump right into discussion about January 6th. So again, this is something I like hardcore forgot to talk about. That's my bad. Um, And so a lot happened. I'm going to kind of do my best to summarize exactly what happened, uh, kind of what we learned, what we didn't learn, kind of the whole structure of the of the hearings and then kind of also looking forward at what the January 6th commission is going to be doing next. Um, So basically, we talked a lot last semester about the structure of the select committee, how they chose the individuals that are on the committee um, and kind of what their plans were for the for what this the, the select committee was actually going to do um, and something that I talked about kind of months and months and months ago kind of when we didn't know what that structure of those hearings was going to be was okay we have this committee we have this structure we kind of know a little bit about what's going on now what are they actually going to do about it like we know that they're holding private hearings um but are they actually going to be doing anything with that information and i personally like at that point was a little bit frustrated that they had been kind of holding on to this information for such a long time and they weren't doing anything to kind of speed along the process they just were kind of letting it all simmer 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 um and to me that didn't feel like the most effective strategy Um, But now we kind of understand why they were holding on to all that information, because they wanted to make sure that they were doing all of those internal interviews, building up their case as much as possible so they could all kind of present it all in one go. Um, So basically the the hearings 
as far as we are aware at this point, discuss the full scope of what Donald Trump knew um, around the days before, during, and after January 6th. So kind of charting his whole relationship with the Stop the Steal rally, with the Stop the Steal movement, and all of that. Um, and the narrative that they were trying to spin very clearly um, was that Donald Trump was ultimately, maybe not individually, but certainly liable um, for his and his associates' actions around the 2020 election. So basically perpetuating the big lie um, that has been kind of coined as the the, the big phrase um, around kind of claiming that the 2020 election was stolen. Um, and so kind of the, I'm not going to go into like all the specific details, because if you're really interested in like the day to day, like every individual detail, like you can go and you can watch these things back. They were actually like pretty fun, like pretty dramatic. I watched almost all of them. I have no life. Um, but anyway, basically the kind of big chunks that they talked about first was Trump's actual behavior around January 6th and again the whole like stop the steal movement um, and this was kind of where a lot of like the most explosive testimony came from um, just because it was you know it was it, they were getting witnesses who were giving an inside look at who Donald Trump actually is and what his behavior actually is like um, and that's a very important very interesting thing that like we don't get you know we're not going to get at many of those things until we get you know memoirs from people who are working inside um the donald trump white house which we already do have some but you know it's 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 interesting to see those things kind of in an unvarnished view um because who a president is inside like the, their private space and outside in the world is very different although i guess for donald trump that line is a little bit blurred, more blurred than it is for other elected officials but i guess that's neither here nor there um, but, you know, one specific report was that when he had gotten back from the rally on the ellipse, which is where he basically incited the siege of the Capitol, basically, he was so upset that he wasn't allowed to go to the Capitol to be with all of the other members of the rally that he threw his like his dinner at the wall. Like he just like chucked his plate at the wall, which is so real of him, like I wish that I could get away with that. Like, I wouldn't because I, like, have, like, a little bit of a conscience and I'm not a toddler. But, like, I wish I could get away with, with throwing my dinner at the wall. That's whatever. So, anyway, there was reports of that. Um, there was also reports of him when they were trying to take him back to the White House instead of going to the Capitol. Um, there was reports of him, like, grabbing at the steering wheel of the car and, like, physically threatening his Secret Service agents. Um, and it was interesting that both of these reports came from um, Cassidy Hutchinson, who I'm going to talk about a little bit more in a bit. Um, but she was kind of this main witness to his behavior before, during, after January 6th. Um, and we're going to kind of get into all of these rumors, all of these claims a little bit later. But just anyway, very interesting look into his actual behavior and around the fact that, because again, the main, the main, the two opposing claims here are one, Donald Trump is individually responsible for instigating this riot versus Donald Trump was just there and they went and they did this on their own. Um, and so his behavior, if he's actually was like this vitriolic and really wanted to go to the, go to the Capitol and all these things, 
you know, if there was a jury, the jury is the American public, um, you know, leads them to believe that, oh, he was actually, if he wanted so bad to go to the Capitol with them, then he must have actually wanted to have been a part of that movement. And he actually was liable for the actions caused by, you know, the actions of all of those rioters. So anyway, so that was kind of a big chunk of the conversation. And then also the 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 thing that was the most unique about these hearings, and I think the reason why they structured the hearings in the way that they did, was that we could hear directly from witnesses uh, and directly from the people who were either directly or indirectly impacted by not only January 6th, but also the big lie kind of in general, in a macro sense. Um, so the first day was hearing from Capitol Police officers um, who were kind of directly injured, um, individuals who, well, they didn't hear directly from this individual, but, you know, hearing reports of people who are no longer able to kind of be police um, because they were so injured um, by what happened on January 6th. Uh, And this was, not only was this just like a very powerful moment to hear about what was happening inside the Capitol from people who were on the front lines. Um, and then also kind of hearing that testimony interspersed with video footage. It was just like a very, that, that, in that particular section was very well produced and very like rhetorically effective, I think, but we'll get into that more later as well. Um, but then also politically, that was very interesting because, um, you know, we, we do know that the January 6th com- select committee is a very democratically heavy body. There's only two Republicans on it. Um, it's also a very heavily democratically favored group. Um, the Republicans don't really like it very much, and they do not support it. And if they do take back control of the House, they are almost certainly going to get rid of it. Um, and of course, the Republicans are always the ones saying that they want to back the police. We should be supporting the police. We should be funding the police, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then here we have this testimony from Capitol Police officers who are saying that, you know, this this their main group of supporters were the ones actually committing violence against them. And here are the Republicans who don't want to support these police. And that was just a very like effective political tool for those like moderate Democrats who want to be seen as supporting the police. That's tangential, but still kind of interesting. Also goes to show that like despite the fact that this they're they're kind of saying that this process isn't political, it's like ethical and moral. There is always politics being embedded into all of these things. Um, And I think it's like, I think it's a good thing. Like we can't ignore the political implications of all of this, but it is, it is a political process in one sense, um, as well as being kind of important just to like understand the truth around what happened um, over the past, you know, oh my God, two years ago. (laughs) It's been such a long time, Um, you know, around what actually happened. So anyway, it's just an an interesting balance between um, what the committee purports the commission to be versus what its actual goals are, what its actual effect is going to be. Um, But anyway, also, we heard this was, I think, very interesting. We heard from some like pretty important Trump allies. So Bill Barr, we heard from. Ivanka and Jared Kushner, we heard from. Um, 
And let me just say, Ivanka and Jared are not invited to Christmas. They are they are absolutely being cut out. They are it, it's it's over for them. Um, very interesting to hear that Ivanka to hear the the testimony from Ivanka and Jared. And I think like are they individually li- like I don't know. Like, what their particular responsibility is in January 6th, I truly don't know. I think that they did testify to the commission because they knew that they did something wrong. Like, they're aware that something bad happened, um, and they do not want to be held legally liable for it down the line. And I think testifying to the commission means that they might get some some protection down the line. Um, And so whether or not they actually believe the things that they're saying, like, do they actually believe that Donald Trump was in the wrong um, for what he was saying and what he was doing? Who knows? Um, But they certainly were saying it to that. You know, they were they were saying that Donald Trump did do bad things. He did kind of instigate this 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 riot like they did come forward and say those things. I mean, I think they were subpoenaed, but everyone has avoided the subpoenas. So it really doesn't. (laughs) doesn't really have that much of an impact but regardless um and they also didn't have to say the things that they said they could have very easily kind of swerved around the issues or you know come up with some defense with their lawyers where they didn't have to be kind of throwing donald trump under the bus that was very clearly what they did um but then again yeah hearing from all of these trump allies was also again significant because it was all of these people kind of seeing the castle crumble around them and seeing how they can protect themselves. Um, and that's that's significant, that, that kind of foundation of the, the Trump political war machine um, kind of starting to lose some of its impact. Um, and is that going to have an impact on 2024 if Donald Trump chooses to run? I think yes. Um, and this is something that we know from kind of our small looks into you know the Trump the the kind of the current Trump machine um, and the fact that he doesn't have that many strong allies he doesn't have that many committed allies Um, and so there's just a lot there's there's fewer people around him and there's fewer people with a lot of good political savvy around him uh, which does mean that he is just not you know, it, he doesn't need to be politically effective in the same way that other politicians do, but it does mean that he has lost some of his institutional support. He doesn't have as big of a army of allies, of supporters anymore, at least kind of on that top level, which is significant to kind of the kind of campaign that he can run. Because um, you can just throw money at a problem, but if you don't have good strategists using that money effectively, there's kind of no point. So. It, it will be interesting to see if the loss of Ivanka and Jared and other allies um, will kind of be a problem for him in a couple of years. And I think that it will, but we will see. But then, you know, whatever. Does anything ever really stick to this man? Not really. Whatever. Um, moving on, we also got testimony from Ben Raffensperger, who was the, um, or is the, was? I don't know. Um, the... Um, Secretary of State of Georgia. Um, And of course, we know that Georgia was like a nightmare (laughs) uh, in 2020 and kind of around the whole big lie controversy and Stop the Steal and everything else. They were very much at the forefront. Um, And so hearing his testimony and I, I, you know, if you guys were following 2020 at all in the way that I was, um, you know that 
he was very, very outspoken. He is a Republican. He was very outspoken, though, about this was a safe, fair, clean election. There was nothing else going on. Um, and he was, he was, you know, he was going viral all the time. And then because he was so outspoken about being kind of anti-Donald Trump, anti-Big Lie, he was getting a lot of death threats, a lot of just controversy um, around that. So that was pretty interesting as well. Um, and then another very, very important, this was, I think, the most powerful testimony to me, was um, a former Georgia election worker uh, named Shay Moss. And it was her and her mother kind of a little bit. Um, she was basically response, like she was counting ballots and somehow people found a video of her counting ballots and they thought that she was counting the ballots incorrectly. And they basically started this like whole witch hunt against this like one poor woman who is like a volunteer election worker. Um, and she stated that like she's still afraid to leave her house, like she's had to move, um, just like all of these like horrible, horrible things that happened to her as a result of the big lie. Um, so again, we have that like direct impact from the Capitol police officers on January 6th, the physical, emotional harm that's happened to them on that day during those hours and afterwards. And then we also have people like Shay Moss who are talking about what the larger impact of the big lie was on them and also on the election system in a macro sense. Right. That loss of trust in the election system, that loss of trust in democracy uh, and kind of like what those long term impacts are. And that's very important and very interesting that they're kind of the commission was looking to increase the overall context from just the date of January 6th to before and after and long term. Right. Because it's all well and good for him to have done one bad thing. But you know what? They broke some windows in the Capitol, but they fixed the windows. They cleaned it up. It's all good. Now, let's look at a larger sense of how did January 6th and the big lie in general affect democracy long term? And you can look at Shea Moss as an example of how, how the big lie impacted democracy, impacted elections in a much longer, more profound sense than what individually happened on January 6th. That's pretty cool and pretty important. And that testimony was really good. And if you're interested, I would watch it. Um, she was very, it was just, it was very powerful and very emotional. Um, the next, the, the really big kind of showstopper um, hearing was with Cassidy Hutchinson, um, who is a former senior aide to Mark Meadows. And like, before I get into what she was talking about, let me just say, I was watching her testimony and I was like, this girl is like 25. Like there's no way she's that much older than me. And I was Googling her and she's like 26. Like, anyway, I don't know. It's just, the world is such an interesting place. Um, but Cassie Anderson, former senior aide to Mark Meadows, as far as I'm aware, basically what that means is that like she was his like executive assistant. Um, so she was like doing policy work, but a lot of it was... Um, like, she was in the meetings, but I'm not sure, like, what how much substantial policy work she was doing. It kind of doesn't matter. The point is she was in the room, and she was in the room a lot. Um, and this was probably the most explosive testimony because, again, it gave us, as I talked about earlier, it gave us kind of a view into what happened inside the White House um, before, during, after January 6th. Um, and especially not only Donald Trump's behavior, 
but also the behavior of his allies, including Mark Meadows, including Rudy Giuliani, and the kind of their knowledge that January 6th was going to be larger and more important than what we thought it was going to be. Um, Where, like, they knew that this rally was happening. They knew that there was going to be potentially other actions. They knew that there was going to be a push to the Capitol um, after the rally at the Ellipse. Like, they knew that all of these steps were going to be taken, and they were negotiating with Trump whether or not he was going to be able to go to the Capitol throughout the entire process. So again, we know that's like explosive because the whole argument here is, did Donald Trump know that he was going to be inciting people to go to the Capitol? And here we have testimony that indicates, yes, he did know that he was going to incite people to the Capitol. And in fact, not only was he going to incite them to go to the Capitol, he was going to try to go with them. So that's like a pretty big thing. And then I think also his volatility, as I discussed, um, was pretty important. And especially he um, he also knew that individuals at the ellipse, at the rally, were armed. And he still made that statement. He incited them to go to the Capitol. Um, and so, again, we don't have time to get into like all the specifics of her testimony. Um, but that was a really interesting two hours. Um, and again, probably probably the most explosive testimony. Um, and yeah, pretty, pretty interesting stuff about like, you know, the inside, the inside view of Donald Trump's behavior. Also funny is that Cassie Hutchinson is still working for the Republicans. Um, and so like the, <laughs> like the GOP Twitter account, like tweeted out something of like, this woman like doesn't know anything, like how dare she blah, blah, blah. And then they had to delete it because like, She's an employee of the GOP. <laughs> like, it's so funny. I don't know what she's doing now, but I would be very surprised if she still works for the Republican Party. But I guess that's just me. That's fine. Um, and then kind of the last important witness that I wanted to touch on was the um, hearing from, like, representatives of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, which are those, like, far-right um, groups that were there on January 6th, um, that went to the Capitol, that do have that, like, very far-right agenda. Um, and I think Donald Trump's relationship with those groups um, is something that's been hotly debated um, for a very long time. And so kind of hearing from those people and hearing them say, oh, yeah, when Donald Trump said, let's go to the Capitol, we said, oh, yeah, we're going to the Capitol. Um, and kind of figuring out exactly how Donald Trump's words, how Donald Trump's actions were being interpreted by those groups. Because, you know, there is a very important issue of, yeah, Donald Trump can say whatever he wants, but the impact of it also matters and he has to be held liable for what his what his words do, what impact his words have. Like, you can't just, free speech is all well and good, but there, you know, you can... You, but you can't say whatever you want. You have to be, you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater, right? That's not protected by the First Amendment because if you're inciting violence or you're um, invo- like you're causing chaos, then you can't do that, right? There are, you can say whatever you want, but then you have to live with the consequences of those actions. Um, and so to know that Donald Trump's words are causing a very specific action or you know, causing people to think a very specific thing is just as important 
as kind of what his actual intentions were around the words, which is why you have to be careful when you talk. Um, yeah. Another very, okay, this is, <laughs> we're talking about, we'll talk about this at the end. Overall, the overall narrative, again, is that Trump's actions around the big lie directly led to people inside and outside the Capitol having their lives, their wellnesses, their livelihoods directly threatened. And that is the narrative that the commission was trying to spin. Great. Um, did they do that effectively? Did they not? Um, part of trying to determine whether or not they did it effectively kind of depends on what we still kind of still haven't heard from. Um, we still haven't heard from a lot of high-level witnesses um, that have been subpoenaed. So we haven't heard from Mark Meadows. We haven't heard from Mike Pence. We haven't heard from Trump himself outside of truth social posts, I guess. Um, and it's possible that some of them have testified behind closed doors and we just don't know about it. Um, but we still, again, haven't heard from those. We haven't heard from Rudy Giuliani. Have we heard from Rudy Giuliani? Oh my gosh. Don't quote me on that, actually, because now that I'm thinking about it, maybe we did. There were so many hearings over the summer. They're all blending together. That's fine. Again, regardless, we haven't heard from a lot of high-level people. Um, and then some things are still somewhat unsubstantiated. So um, I mentioned one of Cassidy Hutchinson's comments that um, Donald Trump, like, lunged at a Secret Service officer and tried to, like, grab the wheel. And this was the only thing that Cassidy Hutchinson said during her testimony that she did not specifically see or hear herself. Um, this was something that was told to her by the Secret Service officer um, and by, like, his director of security or whatever. Um, and then she relayed it. I don't know why they chose to include that particular element. I understand why they would do it for the rhetorical value, but it is, again, the only thing that she said that she did not see or hear herself. And that, and because that means that that one piece can be criticized, can be kind of pulled apart, and if that one piece can be pulled apart, her entire testimony can fall apart. And if her entire testimony falls apart, that kind of linchpin in the commission's argument also falls apart. So I don't know why they included that. And because it's unsubstantiated, there is, it does leave the room for that entire argument to be kind of, to fall apart. So that's, that's important as well. Um, and then there's also some evidence that we just like don't have access to. So um, like secret service phones were wiped. Like there's a lot, there's some sketchy stuff that's going on around um, like information, like physical data and information that we don't have from January 6th. Um, and so because we don't have that, we're missing some details, which is important. And we need that to kind of figure out the full picture. So again, that's kind of what we don't have. And then there's a question kind of finally of like, was the whole process, was the whole like set of hearings, prime time, multimedia, blah, 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 a good thing or not? And my answer is yes and no. So I was initially very nervous about the idea of turning the hearings into kind of a performance event but I actually think that it was probably the best way to do it. Um, there were so many hearings, 
and it was pretty hard to keep track of all the moving parts. And, like, I was watching them pretty closely, and even even at some points I was like, okay, there's too many names. I can't keep track of all these people. Like, somebody somebody get me, like, a sheet that, like, has every, like a, like, a network sheet that, like, has everybody connected together because, like, there's no way for me to follow this. Um, but I think that the structure that they had with all of the individual hearings kind of each focusing on one different element of the big lie was probably the best way for people to consume all of this information because it was a lot of information and I think if they did try to like truncate it down into one like three-hour marathon it would have probably not been as effective but they did they broke it down in a way that was more digestible for kind of the everyday citizen. Um, it also kind of kept you like a little bit more engaged because you were going through kind of unraveling one string at a time. Um, and that kind of made you feel a little bit more engaged to the whole process. And they did lay it out step by step by step. And that was rhetorically a lot more effective. Also, I keep saying rhetorically effective, but the most rhetorically effective component of the hearings was hearing directly from witnesses. Um, because it's a lot easier to stomach this kind of stuff coming from an everyday citizen or a Republican ally or, you know, just somebody who, a, a police officer, you know? It's harder to say, oh, well, if Liz Cheney is sitting up there and telling me that Donald Trump did all this stuff, like, why should I believe her? But then you're watching a police officer saying it and you say, hmm, yeah, maybe there's some merit to that. Maybe there's something else going on. Um, and so using witnesses basically as the spokespeople for these different elements of the hearings was extremely effective. Um, and it made the whole thing A, more engaging and B, kind of more likely that people are actually going to pay attention to it, which is pretty interesting. Um, again, I do wish that they did all of this sooner I know that they had to collect all of the data and actually structure all of the hearings and then plan all the hearings and write all the hearings and make sure all the witnesses were involved and blah, 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 blah. But I'm not sure what the wisdom is of pushing these hearings right up to the midterms. Um, and again, like I talked about earlier, there is the moral, ethical side of the hearings. And then there's the political aspect. Um, and you can't you can't ignore the politics of it. You just literally can't, especially because it's a it's a it's a Democrat side and it's a Republican side. And you just can't ignore those like po the political implications of all of it. Um, so that's some I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't really know what the answer is there. I don't know what the political calculus is behind the scenes. I think that it's very, very complicated because. There is a stated purpose of getting to the bottom of it and preserving democracy and making sure that everything is safe for elections long term. And then there's the unstated goal, which is to kind of n cut Donald Trump's chances of winning in 2024 off at the knees um, and also to potentially convict him for treason or whatever they're kind of planning on. Um, and so I, I don't know. I think that there's like a very interesting balance between those two issues. And I don't really know what the answer is. Um, but anyway, it is certainly something to think about. And of course, this is making their I, I, their goal here is to make January, January 6th 
part of the calculus jury on election day. When someone goes into a voting booth, if they're not a one-issue voter, they're going to be thinking through all of these different things, and they want January 6th to be one of the things that they think about. Is that going to help them long term? I do not know, but I guess we'll find out. Um, But anyway, what is next for the commission? Um, The commission has been planning more hearings for the next few weeks. There was supposed to be one today, but they pushed it back because of Hurricane Ian that is about to or has already hit Florida. Um, It's unclear about new evidence they plan on presenting, but it's probably going to be important given that it's been several months um, since the last hearing. Um, So it's going to be kind of new sets of evidence. Um, And I think right now they're just trying to get everything done and out of the way before Election Day, given that um, there's a solid chance that the Democrats are going to lose the House in November um, and the Republicans are going to altogether get rid of the commission. Liz Cheney also, again, lost her primary battle, which means she's out. Um, And she is the co-chair of the commission, so they're trying to get as much value out of her um, by the time January rolls around. So there's certainly going to be movement around there. And also, again, because they're trying to make January 6th part of the election calculus, they're going to be doing things for the next month um, right up until Election Day. Um, And then ultimately, the commission has to make some kind of larger suggestion or recommendation on legislative or judicial action. So are they going to suggest to the Justice Department that they prosecute Trump? What's like what what's the outcome? What's the long-term goal here outside of just kind of truth-telling? Truth-telling is very important, but I don't see that being the actual like long-term solution for the commission. Um and then of course we really do not have time to get into all of this, but we have on top of everything, the raids happening at Mar-a-Lago, and how does that play into the overall calculus around um, whether or not to suggest that they prosecute Trump, or in what ways they are prosecuting Trump, and like how far, how large does the conspiracy go, um, and what is Donald Trump's guilt level in terms of like treason (laughs) uh like there's a there's there's a lot of layers here that have been kind of building up and building up and building up and a lot of it is about his chances in 2024 um and that's a lot of the political machinations here is like how can we make sure that all of these things are building up to a point where he has literally no chance of winning in 2024 um but as i said before does anything stick to this man Like, anything at all? No. Um, But that was a lot. That's all we're going to talk about with January 6th today. Um, There's more that we could talk about, but I have other things to discuss. Um, We'll, again, like, as with everything that I talk about on this show, nothing exists in a silo, and nothing is just, like, a one-time thing. Oh, this happened, and now we're never going to discuss it again. Um... All of these issues are interacting with each other. Um, all these issues are interacting with different elected officials in different ways. Um, and especially because we are in an election year, we're one month out from elections. All of these things are coming to a point where they're all blending together. They're all interacting with each other. And so it's something that we're going to be bringing up a lot um, 
just because, again, nothing exists in a silo, Um, and especially an issue as big as this that directly impacts so many people. Um, You know, it's something that's it's something that's going to come up and it's something that we're going to talk about. Um, And everything is connected and everything is bad. (laughs) That's that's the the TLDR. Okay, moving on. I'm going to take a sip of my little drink. Okay, great. Um, next thing we're going to talk about, also super depressing, and it's going to make me angry, so I'm going to try not to get, like, too loud and obnoxious, is immigration. So, big topic of conversation over the past few months, but over, but kind of particularly in the past few weeks, has been immigration. Um, basically, the governors of red states, um, mainly Florida and Texas, have been quite literally like shipping buses and planes worth of migrants to blue states such as New York and DC. Um, Most recently and most kind of significantly, that's the kind of thing we're going to talk about most right now, um, is that the Florida governor DeSantis, one of the worst people, I'm going to make that statement right here right now, um, shipped a group of like 50 migrants to Martha's Vineyard. And so there's much to discuss here. Um, One, for a little bit of levity, I just want to say that like when I was growing up, I truly did not understand the concept of Martha's Vineyard. And I've seen this on the internet. And so I know I'm not the only person, but I really thought it was an island that was owned by Martha Stewart. I don't know. I literally have no idea. I like just I, like I had friends who were like, oh, yeah, we're going to go to Martha's Vineyard for a week. I was like, I, but what are you going to do there? Like, I don't understand the concept of Martha's Vineyard. And I still don't really. But that's just a little levity, a little aside <laughs> about the concept of Martha's Vineyard. Um, but the overall analysis here, I'm about to change the tone so much. This is I did not do. <laughs> I should not have made that aside about Martha's Vineyard. Um, so basically the overall kind of legal analysis here, kind of also my own analysis, is that DeSantis basically manipulated these migrants into thinking that they were being taken to Boston, um, where they were going to have employment opportunities and immigration relief, um, if they kind of got on this plane. But instead of going to Boston where they had all of these things, they were basically dropped on the side of the road by Martha's Vineyard and said, okay, get off. Um, Which according to a lot of legal analysts basically amounts to human trafficking, um, which is a little upsetting. That's a civil rights violation. Um, So DeSantis and co are arguing that it's all voluntary, but it seems pretty clearly, seems pretty clear that they were being taken advantage of. And, you know, that kind of goes into one of the, we've talked about this before, but one of the biggest issues with the immigration system in America is that there's so much bureaucracy. It's so complicated that it's basically impossible for a migrant, especially if English isn't their first language, to navigate the system and to understand what's going on. So when a official says to you, as a migrant, you're extremely vulnerable, you're in a kind of a very emotionally physically vulnerable situation someone says if you get on this plane you're going to have a job you're going to have a house you're going to be protected it's all good you're going to get on the plane and then to go some then then to basically to be dropped somewhere where you don't have access to any of those things um is a pretty terrible thing for someone to do um and it's also 
you know, so because of those vulnerabilities, you're, these migrants are, are just absolutely so vulnerable to legal and political abuse, which is so problematic to kind of using these individuals as political props in order to kind of make some kind of statement about sanctuary cities or whatever it is that they're trying to talk about. And I'm not saying that the Democrats have never used migrants as political props because the Democratic Party is not a perfect institution by any stretch of the imagination. But I don't know, and again, I could be sta- I could stand corrected, I don't know if they've ever done human trafficking for a political stunt. Don't know about that. Um, and of course, you know, the the a lot of there's been several people who have been kind of stepping up to help these migrants and they're now suing DeSantis um, and kind of his allies for human trafficking and for civil rights violations um, because of kind of their their manipulation of the system in order to kind of get the migrants out of the state. Um, and hopefully this will kind of do something to help these migrants kind of help navigate the situation, hopefully get some justice for what happened. Um, something also interesting about the situation is that they were all given paperwork basically um, that said that they had to check into a, or they were all kind of given a fake address. Um, and they basically chose the f- officials from Florida basically gave um, every migrant a different shelter address across the country. And in order to kind of continue to apply for asylum, they needed to check in at an immigration office near to the address that they were given. And the addresses that they were given were all across the country. So there was somebody who had like a address in California, but now they're in Martha's Vineyard. And how are they going to get there in two days to kind of check in to make sure that they can continue along with this process? So again, there's just like so many layers um, to this story, but basically the the long and short of it is that these people who are very politically vulnerable and legally vulnerable and economically vulnerable and like physically vulnerable to all of these different things are being being taken advantage of kind of on a um, pretty grand level for a political stunt. And of course, a lot of this is my own like normative analysis of the situation, I'm sure somebody else will tell you a completely different thing. Um, But it doesn't make me feel good. It makes me feel very bad. And um, yeah, I'm not not huge into that. Um, Also, kind of more a little more of a local angle. There's also been busloads of um, migrants coming to DC all summer um, to Union Station to outside the vice president's mansion. And again, like talk about a political stunt, like it's very clear that the elected officials that are doing this don't actually care about these migrants being given access to the resources that they need to survive. They're interested in using these individuals as political props, as a stunt. They don't care about these people's lives. And I don't understand how they get away with claiming that they're pro-life, that they that they claim that they're so interested in morality and all of these things when they literally don't care about these people at all. Okay, deep breaths, deep breaths. Um, But anyway, a lot of these migrants that have come to DC have said that they're doing very well. So shout out to DC. Um, But kind of on a more macro sense about the border and kind of about border policy, um, 
migrants are still being turned away because of Title, title 42 and several different things. So the border is not open, contrary to kind of what people are saying. Um, Biden also just announced that he's going to finish building the border wall, which, like, again, we don't have time to get into, but whatever. And then, uh, yeah, so, but the Biden administration has allowed more than a million immigrants entry into the country while their asylum cases are being processed, which, like, makes sense. That's what you're supposed to do. The whole point of asylum is that they're in a politically, economically vulnerable, they're, like, they're being persecuted in some way or another. So if they're applying for asylum, you can't send them back to the country where they're being persecuted. Like, whatever. I literally, like, I'm so worked up right now. Okay. Um, but that's kind of what I wanted to cover on immigration. I would have liked to spend a little more time on it, but time management is not my skill on this show. That's okay. Um, last but not least, we're going to do some little bit more, I guess, wonkiness outside of my, like, a little bit of an emotional breakdown about the, the Republican Party. Um, we are going to talk about the federal budget. So fun. So exciting. I love the federal budget. Woohoo. Okay. Um, anyway, the thesis of this section is never let anyone tell you not to procrastinate because Congress had all year to do something and they made a plan for federal funding in the short term, five days before federal funding expired. So, you know, good for them. Um, so the Senate advanced a short-term funding bill yesterday um, after Joe Manchin conceded defeat on a um, kind of uh, connecting the the kind of continuing resolution to an energy permitting package. Um, so he basically said, fine, I won't include this. We'll get the bill passed. It's like, okay, good job. Um, the So this this continuing resolution, it cleared a procedural hurdle, 72-23. Um, but then the whole bill needs to be voted on, um, which does require agreement by all 100 senators. It'll probably happen at some point today if it hasn't already. I don't know. I haven't checked the news this morning, which I probably should have done, but that's okay. Um but anyway, and then after, of course, after they pass it, it has to go on to the House. They'll vote, whatever. It, the, the continuing resolution will pass today or tomorrow um, before the House and Senate go on recess. And then um, that'll kind of extend federal funding until December. Um, so the actual provision that Manchin got rid of was a, a proposal to basically speed up permitting of energy products energy projects. So it's basically an effort to support energy independence by like boosting fossil fuel renewable energy production um, by just basically like getting rid of a lot of the, the 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 rules that you usually need to get some of those energy projects through. Um, and this was very interesting because there was a lot of opposition <laughs> to this provision on both sides of the aisle. So a lot of liberal Democrats were concerned because um, it like got rid of a lot of like environmental protections and a lot of provisions that would make that um, you have to like review the like environmental impact of these policies um, before going through with the projects. And then a lot of Republicans didn't support the bill because they think that the bill wouldn't do enough to support the fossil fuel industry. So on one side, it's saying, oh, it supports the fossil fuel industry too much. And the other side says it's not doing enough. 
So basically, there was no coalition in support of this bill at all. Um, so we had like Bernie Sanders and, um, oh my gosh, Bernie Sanders and like far right Republicans, like all getting together and being like, no, for different reasons, no, but still no. Um, so that was kind of, it's just funny. And then um, Shelley Moore Capito, who is the top Republican on the Environment and Public Works Committee, proposed her own permitting bill. And that's something that's going to get taken up a little bit down the line. Um, so theoretically, there will be some kind of permitting legislation. Um, it's kind of some changes or at least temporary changes in the permitting process. Um, but now that is not so much a problem. Um, so the final resolution itself that did get passed um, includes $12 billion in aid to Ukraine, uh, which also includes $35 million in response to potential nuclear and radiological incidents in Ukraine, which is so fun. I love this for us so, so much. Um, and then also includes um, a couple other pieces of like important kind of temporary funding, including a funding patch of a billion dollars in heating assistance for low-income families, um, $20 million to address a water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, $112 million for federal court security, which is like an important asterisk that we don't have time to get into, but an asterisk nonetheless, um, and then billions in other disaster aid, um, which is particularly important given that it is hurricane season. Is it even hurricane season? There's just a lot of hurricanes happening right now. Um, and so, of course, with Hurricane Ian kind of rolling in right now, um, it's going to be important to kind of have that funding set aside, um, especially because now funding is basically not going to get touched until December. Um, so Congress has to pass the bill before Friday in order to avoid a shutdown. That'll likely happen um, unless something like crazy, crazy happens. I'd be so, so shocked if they let the government shut down uh, in, you know, October before Election Day. Um, importantly, it's getting pushed until the deadline is now pushed until December, which is after elections, which is during the lame duck session. So that's going to cause some problems for the Democrats if they are indeed lame ducks. Um, and then but also, you know, something probably something there there will be a budget and the budget probably will be good um, because Richard Shelby and Patrick Leahy, who are both very senior members, both retiring at the end of the year, um, both have a very strong interest in getting a good bill through. Um, so there's going to be some good action around getting this bill done. Um, so members do have more time for negotiations now. We don't really know what's going to be included in the final bill. Um, but because these negotiations are going to be happening over the next month and a half, we'll definitely get like a pretty good, well, two and a half months, October, November, half of December. Um, and especially after election day, we'll hear a lot about it. Um, so again, nothing exists in a silo. We will continue to discuss this process as it changes. Um, notably, earmarks are a thing this time, this fiscal year, as they were last year. Um, the, the difference between what has been requested and approved for the first draft of the bill and then what's going to be included at the end um, is very much going to change. What's approved right now is like an insane amount of money and an insane amount of earmarks. And there's just no way that all of those things get through. Um, but again, it is something that um, we're going to be watching fairly closely. Um, 
as we get through. And of course, because they can't get through a big bill without 60 votes in the Senate. Um, and of course, if the Republicans do take control of the House, that's going to be a problem as well if they do choose to push the funding process all the way until 2023 when the Republicans are officially in charge, if that does happen. Um, and then again, looking at last year for evidence, the amount of earmarks that were included in the initial draft and then what got included at the end was a very big change. Um, so we're not going to see kind of every single individual request being approved, but a lot of them probably will. So we'll see how that goes. Um, so again, this stopgap stop measure takes us until December 16th. But it's October, and it's October before an election day. So who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what's going to be discussed? <sighs> boy, oh boy. That was a lot. That's all I really wanted to cover today. But before we go, I am going to show you all, or have you all listen to, if I can get it to work, which fingers crossed I can, a very fun political ad for a state rep in Utah. And it's got uploaded to TikTok and it's so funny and I love it so much. And so this is our fun little political story of the week. It was like, I, I which watched it first like a month ago. So it's been a very long time. It's certainly not from this week, but it's still fun and I like it a lot. And so we're gonna listen to it and then I'm gonna let you go on your way. So with that being said, let's see if I can District 12, listen up right here. There's a new name on the ballot for the Senate this year. My name is Linda Paulson, Republican and awesome. Love God and family and the Constitution. I tried to get another conservative to run. Nobody could do it, so I'm getting it done. I'm pro-religious freedom, pro-life, pro-police. The right to bear arms and the right to free speech. I want less government control and regulation want to stop and expose all political corruption where's integrity morality accountability government programs should lead to self-sufficiency and support traditional family as the fundamental unit of society but in schools they're pushing for new beliefs and just to clarify as a female adult i know what a woman is this is the most important thing to me in the world potentially. Uh, Linda Paulson, she's got bars. She's got bars. Um, <laughs> it's so funny. The last one. Anyway, but with all that being said, thank you guys so much for listening. This has been a delightful episode. I hope you enjoy this lovely fall day. Um, if you're interested in getting engaged with the show, you can follow on Twitter at Sheep Thrills Radio or on Instagram at sheepthrillsgw, um, let, let me know. What do you think? What, what do you think is the political calculus of the January 6th commission? Um, I'd love to know. I hope you have a great week, and I will talk to you guys all next Wednesday morning. Have a great day, and I will talk to you later. <laughs>